This is James Fox, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy, and delighted to welcome with me a professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. His research is in microbiology, immunology, biocomputation, and analysis of UFO artifacts, materials, and also reports of UFO encounters. Uh, I have the one and only Professor Gary Nolan. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Us too, Gary. Uh, very popular guest as soon as we announced you were coming on. It's been quite exciting. A lot of listener interest as well. So hopefully we can do that some justice for those who are listening and watching along. Gary, I want to know first a little bit about your, your early experiences of the UFO subject. As a child growing up, did you have any favourite books, TVs or, or movies that were influences and what became a bit of a passion of yours? Well, I've always been interested in science fiction. I mean, I think some of the first books that I ever read were uh, sci-fi, mostly Arthur C. Clarke uh, and Isaac Asimov. So, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a child of the 60s, if you will. So at that time, the big time uh, science fiction writers were those two, Heinlein, uh, Larry Niven, uh, etc. And uh, they pretty much taught me, frankly, a lot about the way the universe might be constructed because they were all what you would call hard science fiction writers as opposed to the more social sciences types so that they would base their stories largely around some sort of scientific principle, a novel one usually they would propose, like you know Isaac Asimov's The Laws of Robotics and things like that. Uh, and uh, so that pretty much settled me in terms of my, my kinds of interests in fiction, but it kind of went a little bit beyond fiction in that you could see many of these things becoming a reality. And it's almost a trope these days that, you know, science fiction becomes reality and science fiction is really just a prediction of what's to come. So uh, that always was, I guess, the center of my fantasy mental life, uh, if you will. Arthur C. Clarke said himself that any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. And that mm -hmm. certainly sounds like something you've kept going throughout your career with some of the reported things you've had your hands on and got to study and just the work you've done. I want to get right into talking about a, a recent podcast appearance of yours was on Lex Friedman. And that was a fascinating, wonderful discussion. You spoke about DNA and how it's almost a perfect memory system. Now, I am far from the mind and the genius that Lex Friedman has, so it'll be a bit more layman's terms here. You talked about how three billion bits of information don't make up Gary or Lex or, or Andy, and that's a really interesting way to think of it. Do you think we are created for our environment, or are we a product of evolution, or maybe a little bit of both? Well, I, I don't like to get into anthropomorphisms as to whether we are created, per se. Let's just say that the environment is such that it allowed for something like us to become, right? So, you know, the, the universe is constructed in a way that allows for life to live. Now, how it was constructed, whether it was purposefully constructed by something or whether it was just fundamentally a part of reality that meant it had to happen. Those are two very different things. One implies an intent. The other is just 
this is how it is and it has to be. Um, now, why it has to be, and I'll leave that to the physicists and to the philosophers. You know, I'm just going to deal with what is. And so what is, is a world of particles that if they, and, and this borrows quite heavily from uh, the selfish gene hypothesis, that if you can access resources and make more copies of something, you will, right? So that's the whole selfish gene idea that um, given a limited amount of opportunity, uh, but an infinite amount of time for something to occur, uh, if it does occur in a way that allows for it then to self-perpetuate and it has access to resources, it will. So you don't need any uh, other reason than um, the ability to self-replicate for something to begin to self-replicate. And once something starts to self-replicate, it then comes into competition with other things that are trying to self-replicate. And that's where evolution happens, right? That's where you start to vary uh, the way that you replicate uh, to, to out-compete something else. And this becomes especially important as resources become limited. Unlimited resources, there's no evolution, right? Or, or much reason for evolution. But once resources start getting uh, limited, that's when evolution occurs. Uh, Lou Elizondo, uh, a colleague of yours, has talked about the idea on, on several podcasts and other interviews recently that around 70,000 years ago, our species hit an, an exponential boost in development that propelled us to where we are now. Um, we also see similar boosts in evolution at times like the Cambrian explosion event about 570 to 530 million years ago. Do you think there could have been a, a helping hand here to help us develop to where we are? No, again, I, I mean, I mean, yes, there could have been. Um, but again, going back to the notion of complexity that and what's called emergent order is that the Cambrian explosion, at least from a genetic point of view, uh, looks like a, a place where suddenly the building blocks got complicated enough that you could put them together in ways that were extraordinarily unique. It's Kind of like you know playing some of those Sims games that people do, as you as you build more and more complicated objects in the Sims game, you get to put them together in far more complicated ways to build much more sophisticated structures, and that's pretty much what we think happened during the time of the Cambrian explosion. That genetic modules had evolved that were so useful that you could mix and match them in so many different ways that you could create the incredible diversity of what people saw uh, in the animal fauna and the flora kingdoms at the time. So, you know, similarly, you could think about perhaps something like that happening in human evolution, that you had humans of different tribes uh, and different subspecies that we all know now existed, having, let's say, reached a level of mental complexity and the modules of the brain of, uh, that suddenly by them interbreeding with each other could create forms of brain structure that would leap you ahead of the, of the underlying parental species. And it's called hybrid vigor in, in one way that you bring together two things that uh, you know, weren't interacting before. And so you could just as easily explain that leap ahead 
by sudden by bringing together fundamental modules that by themselves didn't do very much, but then in one individual or individuals that two tribes might meet, for instance, and suddenly the the, the daughters and sons of that tribe were so much better than either of the parents that they were in and of themselves capable of exploding out into the rest of the world. So you don't have to. And, and so if you don't have to postulate an intervening hand, then uh, why, why do it? I mean, I'd be, I'd be happy if somebody shows me a video of, you know, of some speed alien intervention, but I don't think you need to, you don't need to go there yet. Are there any particular times in the human evolution that you look to and think there's been a growth or a change that isn't so easily explained? Or as you've kind of said, do you think it's a case of it happened because it could happen? Yeah, I I mean, I think people point to the 70,000 year time frame, um, mostly because the archaeologic record suggests a sudden increase in societal interactions that allowed for trade, uh, the making of uh, objects, uh, the building of uh, communities. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, you have to look at it as well. It's, it's not just, say, the genetic aspect of it. It's building up, uh, let's say, a, a verbal oral history uh, of wisdom, if you will, that could be passed down generation to generation. Right. And so, again, it's like this idea of there's a you can think of it maybe as a Cambrian explosion uh, at the, you know, 100,000 ish years or so ago of both societal uh, knowledge, wisdom, along with the capacity to understand it. Right. The putting together of brain modules and brain abilities uh, that, you know, I mean, happened, I believe, through mutation, obviously. Um, So, you know, but but let's take a different step back and say, you know, let's say that you wanted to postulate uh, a higher intelligence involvement in human history. That, that involvement doesn't need to be a genetic engineering manipulation event. It could just be purposefully putting together tribes with the right features that when bred together would have a higher uh, or a better um, set of what we call phenotypes, brain phenotypes or whatever, than either of the parental tribes, right? So you could guide groups together uh, in ways and you could put them through, let's say, uh, wars. You force them into wars to wean out the strong. Uh, you know, so you could, you could do it without a single bit of intervention. I mean, just look at what we've done with dogs over just a few thousand years. We've taken them from wolves to everything from fluffy little balls of Pomeranian to, you know, giant mastiffs. And I mean, dogs are particularly pliable because of some genetic elements in their DNA that uh, allows for that kind of pliability. Unlike cats, for instance, you can't manipulate cat evolution quite as quickly as you can dogs. But, you know, I mean, that's what, that's what, I think could have been. You don't have to say they specifically intervened in this way. And anything of a higher intelligence, frankly, is not going to need to use the kind of crude genetic engineering that we use. It could it would be far more subtle than what we're doing. And and that kind of loops back to my discussions with Lex 
about the compacted information inside of human DNA. This idea that, um, I mean, human DNA is, is a zip file, right? Within a zip file, within a zip file, within a zip file, within a zip file, you know, ad infinitum. And each layer of the unpacking, as I had said there, expects a context. So the unpacking program, the, the zip unzipper, uh, is, the, is the point in time at which the DNA is present in the cell at a stage of development of the egg to a baby, right? And so the zip file is unzipped in different ways in different cells, but there's new information every time it unzips it. And yet, as I said before, it's, it's, it's only 3 billion base pairs long, and yet there is 10 to the gazillionth power of information somehow packed into it because it's it is expecting the unzipping program to mold the dna into certain outcomes so the universe in a way is part of the unzipping program uh, that the cells at the origination point of an egg uses to unzip and then divide, and now it's two, and then it, now it's becoming the top of the body and the bottom of the body, the head, etc. And so, to me, that's fascinating because, again, now now let's go to this idea of a higher level intelligence intervention to manipulate a human body to evolve something better requires a near godlike level of understanding to do the manipulations so that when you you put, you change this DNA here, this base pair here, it, it will have resonating effects up and down the whole growth of the body. So you have to somehow encompass a knowledge of that one change might have a disastrous effect later on in development of the brain. So, you know, that it's something that we can't do right now. I mean, there's a, there's a whole branch of biology called synthetic biology where they're basically starting it with, with bacteria where we're trying to engineer organisms in the simplest ways. Uh, but usually it's one gene at a time. It's not an organismal systems wide alteration because it requires that level of, of uh, gestalt to understand all of that. And so, um, so if you are going to postulate an intelligence at that level, that's capable of doing that, the changes that it would it, it would introduce would be so subtle that there's no ability today to see it. It's really interesting because many people, including myself, when we think of the potential not saying it happens, but the potential for a, another intelligence to manipulate us as a species would be direct and it would happen now and we hear about abductions and those sorts of things. So do you think there would be more chance that if something was so capable technologically that all of those manipulations could have been done way, way back at the start and, like you say, left in various zip files to happen at various different times, that yeah. those, those intelligences could be, could be long gone? Well, they could be long gone or they could basically have set it on a path that only needs occasional intervention again. Right. I mean, that's perfectly fine to to think about that. You know, you nudge it here, you nudge it there, Um, you know, but but it it also comes back to 
Jacques Vallée's control system, right? Where he talks about the control system as a, as a system of systems that is uh, in, in a continual reinforcement pattern of doing something, nudging, seeing the effect, looking for the feedback, nudging again, nudging again, all driving humanity in a certain direction. Um, now, it it appears that that's what's happening, at least from the way that Jacques will talk about, often talks about it. But um, from a human evolution point of view, you could say that this is what's happening. But again, and I'm not disagreeing with it. I'm just saying that we have to be careful not to claim that that's what's happening because there are perfectly normal ways, let's say mainstream ways to talk about it that could be posited that, you know, so you, you can't say that the mainstream ways yet that even I can come up with uh, are wrong. Uh, so I, I don't want to give my colleagues a reason to point out the things that I already know are potentially an explanation. So it's, 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 you know, the control system is, and Jacques will probably kill me for saying this, it is, it is almost as easy as claiming it's God, right? It's a, uh, it's a deus ex machina uh, that we want to be careful where and when we deploy it to explain things that we're seeing. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, yeah. And I'm sure it makes even more sense to the more intelligent listeners out there as well. Oh, I'm sure you're fine. <laughs> you, have big, you have a big forehead. It must be a brain in there somewhere. I think it's the bad lighting in here. It's the bad lighting. Um, Gary, I want to ask about, your, you've talked about how we as a species have developed, and I want to know your thoughts on and what another intelligent life form could potentially look like. In various Hollywood films, you see it interpreted in different ways. In Arrival, there's a species that experienced time different to us. In Annihilation, the, the shimmer is not under, understandable to us. What do you think it would be likely another intelligent species could look like, or are the possibilities just too infinite? Uh, well, I think they're in, they're infinite. I mean, take any animal in our ocean, uh, and uh, you know, basically give it a reason for creating a society, and uh, uh, or have an oral history uh, that it can pass to its children, um, and. You know, and, and so therefore, time doesn't become a limitation in terms of achievement levels that can be um, obtained, attained. Uh, and, and you can create an intelligence. I mean, you know, we all look at, at octopuses as probably one of the most interesting next intelligences on the planet. I mean, obviously, other than the cetaceans, the cetaceans are, are you know, dolphins and whales are, are obviously intelligent elephants are intelligent. Uh, the, uh, I, I mean, I can't even eat octopus anymore because, you know, of that damn movie, my, my octopus friend or whatever, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, um, it's, uh, and here you have a distributed nervous system in the, in the octopus. It doesn't have a central brain like we do. It, it has distributed nervous systems. So, you know, what, kind of intelligence would evolve out of that something that would have what how many tentacles do most octopus have i don't know uh but they have basically 
let's say, 10 subbrains in addition to their main brain. So, you know, as that as an intelligence like that began to evolve, you could imagine different of those subbrains taking on different functions. Like our brain has what are called nuclei within them. Those are all condensed regions of neural interactions, little circuitries that carry out different functions. One is a memory system, another is fear, another is computation, another is where you think your consciousness resides. Um, would an octopus have a distributed consciousness around all of those subbrains? Would one of them be the subconscious and the other be the conscious? You know, you can, I mean, just reading science fiction, and this is what I get my jollies out of, is uh, is where readers, where writers like Larry Niven or, or David Brin or um, Werner de Vinge, uh, they start with an evolutionary assumption about an animal that is becoming intelligent, uh, and then they take it to the extreme of what the civilizational principles would be for that animal, right? Still began life as an animal. And, and a lot of these books are all about the conflict between what intelligence demands versus what the evolutionary background limits. Like our evolutionary background limits us to certain kinds of monkey behaviors and certain kinds of tribal interactions. You know, the in Larry Niven's books, the puppeteers are derived from uh, a herd animal, and a herd animal basically in this in his cases they lead from behind. So cowardice is the moral principle: run away first, don't fight. Uh, and yet, you know, he writes about how they achieved intelligence a million years ahead of humans, uh, and they're you know they're pretty manipulative Machiavellian characters. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. I'm glad you mentioned the oceans and talking about octopus, and there are a lot of discussions about UAP and potential craft 
either being from our oceans or at least using them as a place to hide. The now infamous Tic Tac events, 2004, the objects were seen going in and out of the water. And we've heard more recently in 2019, again, objects being found going into the water and, and disappearing or at least not being found. What do you think the chances are that given life began within the oceans that something else could have evolved ahead of us as a species and potentially be the occupants of potential craft that we now see in our skies? Yeah, I have no problem with that. You know, I I don't think they have to have, I mean, we evolved originally in the oceans. Um, I don't think they had to have had uh, an evolutionary start uh, or uh, they didn't need to achieve a civilization that was underwater that could have been on land. And then they decided, well, you know, why do we need the surface? There, we can create a hundred Earths you know, every, you know, every five miles under the earth, we could create caverns and live down there, create our own light. There's plenty of energy, you know, in the molten core that we could take advantage of and never have to see the surface again. And we'll leave the surface to, you know, to uh, the animals and let something else evolve. You know, David Brin's books are fascinating because he actually takes a more interventional approach where uh, the species around the galaxies will search out new planets where there's a subsentient species almost ready to be ascended and they will then claim that planet, ascend the species uh, and they would put the species under servitude for half a million years. Uh, but then they become part of a clan. And then it's all about the clans interacting with other clans. And the whole objective is to collect as many species as you can to make your tribe of species larger, right? And But again, it, each of those species is limited by their evolutionary past. And it's used to predict. And so I, I just find that a fascinating approach. And it's in many ways prepared me to be very open-minded about what it is we might be dealing with today in the UAPs that are being seen to take that a step further we're talking about the oceans the skies and obviously the land as well however given the breadth of the electromagnetic spectrum what do you think about the idea of life being present in other parts of it but unable to interact with us and is it possible something could see us whilst we simply can't see them yeah i mean you know i mean this gets into realms of physics where people you know, like to talk about things like multiverses and all the rest. I mean, it's part of the zeitgeist with you know, the, the, the multiverse is like two or three big multiverse movies out right now. Yeah. Um, two from Marvel and the other, I forget uh, the name of the woman, that, um, the Asian woman uh, who uh, is in another, uh, another great movie. Um, so yes, if there are levels of existence that, are next to us, but not accessible to us, but it's sort of like a one-way mirror. You know, we don't see them, but they see us. Uh, And they can step into our reality or reach into our reality. Um, You know, if, if you could reach into a nearby reality just by force of, you know, force of will uh, and manipulate things that are there, would you? Maybe. I mean, I, I might, as long as I'm not, you know, hurting what it is that I'm interacting with. 
that's again if you if you had an understanding and were even aware of hurting what you were interacting with. Uh, I've often talked about fishing and how people that fish wouldn't claim themselves to be evil yet they take an animal from its environment put it on a really strange technology poke prod and then throw it back and it's got striking similarities to to alien abductions and and what may happen with another intelligent species looking at us in the same way as a fish would that be fair Mm -hmm. oh yeah for sure i mean uh you know that's kind of the zoo hypothesis that we're we're basically somebody's not if not property we're not considered equal ethically to them, whatever their ethics might be. Um, but, you know, it also might be in from their point of view uh, to our benefit to what it is that they're doing to us or with us. You know, maybe they're, you know, this whole idea that we were somehow manipulated 70,000 years ago, which again, I, 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 I question severely that conclusion. Um, but if you say that that's what might have happened, um, then the manipulation presumably accelerated something that was of interest to them. And if what is of interest to them was to get us to a higher level of intelligence faster, you then have to ask, well, what's the agenda? Are they looking for equal partners? Or are they looking for something that can be used? That movie you mentioned uh, was Everything Everywhere All at Once, I believe, is the other multiverse. Just in case any movie fans are thinking, oh, I've got another couple of movies I can watch, that's that's the one. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard great things about it. Me neither, but I know Dan has, and it was Dan that threw up the name of it in the background there. Um, you mentioned manipulation, and, and something you talked about that, that got me thinking on the Lex Friedman podcast was about the, the basal ganglia, that part of the brain, and you talked about it, its potential for higher intuition and processing. Right. And while you disagreed that it could potentially be used to, you know, was it to do with abductions or, or manipulation of other alien species? Not quite well, that. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I I have to apologize, if anything, that I kind of overstated at one point. I said the UFO community misinterpreted or went too far. Um, well, I was the one who gave them the raw material to go too far. I mean, uh, so I can't blame uh, anybody but myself. Uh, but I mean, the... The idea was this was sort of a side observation to the damage that we were seeing in some of these patients that Kit Green had, most of whom we now know are essentially Havana syndrome. But there's a subset that were not uh, and cannot be explained by any kind of Havana syndrome. And there was clearly some kind of interaction with something unusual. Um, but it was the, the side observation was that there was this uh, compaction of neural density between these two nuclei of the brain, the head of the caudate and the patamen, which is part of the basal ganglia. It was, it's that central core um, that were, we found in what we called high-functioning individuals, was smart people, right? And you can, you can define smart in many different ways. It is not just you're good at math or you're good at science. You can be good at a lot of things and be still smart. Um, but it's about integration of information, right? So into, intuition is at the heart of things, an unconscious 
uh, conclusion that you make that was not, I drew it out, one plus one equals two, two times five equals 10. You know, and I drew out some proof of what it is. This is this leap that occurs uh, that still puzzles neurological scientists about how these leaps are made. Um, where is the information? If you want to be purely materialistic, where is the information process that allows for that to occur? Like a, 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 an autistic savant who you can ask them what the square root of some giant prime number is times whatever, and they can instantly spit out the answer. Where did that come from? How did they compute that? Um, materialists would like to say it was somehow computed in the brain. Uh, others would say that they reached into the Akashic record and pulled the information from the Akashic record, right? Some sort of, or that they foretold the answer through some sort of time-space leap. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to both of those things, but what it is 100% clear, and we've now done a study with a group at Harvard who are neuroscientists, it's 100% clear that Kitts and my original observation about this being involved in intuition is 100% correct, right? So we intuited that this was the area of intuition. At pretty much the same time as we were doing it, papers were already coming out in the mainstream literature and we, that we were unaware of, but you know, ideas are often in the air, uh, that the caudate especially uh, is uh, a center of, let's call it logic processing. Um, and so what I have been saying is that if information can come through some anomalous channel, right? And by that, I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm really talking about some sort of psychic power, um, some sort of psychic ability. Uh, it will perforce be processed through this region. And if information is to be laid onto human consciousness in our brain, it's going to come through one of the f at least five known mainstream senses. And so different people with different capabilities, let's say emotional intelligence or uh, visual or sensory or whatever, the information can be layered in different ways and then will be interpreted through those channels. But it's, it's being layered into that. So I used the example of, of that guy, Tyler Henry. Um, there's a television show that he's, he has, uh, he's a, a medium. I mean, I listen to him and watch him uh, as he's giving these readings. And I'm wondering, and he says, I see this, and they're, and they're telling me that. And, and I'm wondering how what's going on inside of his head that's allowing him to come to these conclusions and where's the information coming from and how is it being, how is that information being interpreted in the brain? I mean, I would love to sit down and have a conversation with him. He and I have had a couple of quick back channel discussions um, on Twitter, but he's a, he, I mean, if, if I'm busy, he seems a thousand times busier because everybody and their brother wants a reading. Um, you know, so, uh, but that's the question I want to get from some of these mediums is what is it that they see and, and what is the feeling of the sense? I mean, when I get an intuitive flash about something and I'm not a medium or a remote viewer or anything like that, um, 
I say that it, to me, it has a specific color or a, a flavor that's different than other ideas that arrive. I mean, I, I and I've started to train myself to say, ah, I, I, when, when that moment happens, it, I know that that was something that was an intuitive flash, wherever it came from. And I need to pay attention to it because inevitably it's correct. So I would love to train that ability to have it more on call, but, and there's presumably, I mean, I I've read and people have sent me emails with, you know, you can, you can take this training process. You need this kind of meditative process or this kind of yogic practice. You know, I, I don't seem to have the uh, the patience right now to to go through those things. So I'm stuck with at baseline human. For now, uh, you mentioned earlier those potential godlike species that would have to to have such an advanced knowledge of you know us and the universe to to create DNA and and manipulate it like they apparently or could do. Is there a chance that a species like that? could wirelessly tap into some of these parts of the brain to manipulate what people see. And this could be a reason why people can see the same sighting, for example, of a UFO or a UAP, but describe different effects because they're receiving it in a different way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I use the term telefactor in the information. You know, uh, again, mainstream science, you can now put uh, a receiver or even a transmitter onto people's heads and you can start to make them see or hear things uh, that they wouldn't uh, be able to, I mean, through electronic means, right? Transcranial stimulation, et cetera, and, or, or read uh, what people's thoughts, right? I mean, it's very crude. It's not movie level. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading your innermost desires. Uh, but I mean, even with our crude technology, it can be done. So again, imagine something a little bit more advanced or a lot more advanced than us. I, I see no reason why it couldn't reach into our brains and make us think things and transmit information. A thousand years from now, assuming we don't you know, walk off the edge of a cliff somewhere culturally, uh, I would see us being able to do something like that ourselves. It reminds me a little that I've spoken about the sighting I had as a child where me and, and four other people, including my mum, who has no interest in the UFO subject, saw pretty much a Ferris wheel size object on its side, not far off the ground, spinning at an incredible speed. Uh, it certainly wasn't a Ferris wheel, um, but it was in a very built up area, a lot of cars, very highly populated. And I wonder, is it something in those experiences where certain people can see it at a certain time for for a particular reason and that's always stuck with me that maybe a group of us at a distance about a mile away could see this object but maybe people closer to it couldn't and it, it reminds me there's a, a youtube video and it's i had to google it but it's the selective attention test from simons and shabris where you're asked to count how many times a group of individuals pass a basketball between each other and you're so caught up in counting, a lot of people don't notice that someone in a gorilla costume walks through the middle of the group yeah. and walks out a frame. And it's only afterwards when you're told, did anyone see the gorilla, where two people in a group of 10 say yes, yet the gorilla was there, just only so such a small percentage of the group pay attention to see it. Yeah, I failed that test. Uh, I remember back in, I, I actually couldn't believe, I thought I was being tricked. Um, so... Uh, 
I think that that's even without any kind of paranormal reasoning. Lots of people will look at something and just it doesn't fit into their context of what they're thinking about today, for instance. And so they have their mind on something else, let's say. And so they see it and it just doesn't matter and they they move on. And then there, you know, I, I used the example, and this has been talked about a lot, of when the first of the uh, of you know the explorers uh, or conquerors showed up uh, in the New World, and a lot of the Indians uh, and the Mayans or the Incas or whoever at the time didn't recognize the ships for what they were. Uh, they saw these objects, and then they but they didn't realize that their world was about to change and they just went about their, their day until somebody came off those ships and, and walked up and said, by the way, we, we claim you for the queen. <laughs> right. So um, I, I think that there's a, quite a bit of that going on. Now, if you're talking about telefactored information, you could either, it could either be directed or it could be broadcast. And if you don't have the right receiver, then you're just not going to see it. And if you're not at the right level of, you know, the this is something different that I should pay attention to, uh, then you'll just go about your day, right? And so, in a in a way, it's a in a way, it's a, a test, or it's a screen, or it's a filter for those who can see it for what it is and realize what it is. And jumping back to Jacques' control hypothesis, it will control those who are capable of seeing. Now, whether I'm not saying seeing is a good thing, right? It doesn't mean that you're better. It just means you're seeing it. Of course, one of, those, one of those famous events that you've talked about is uh, the aerial school event, which happened in the mid-90s in Zimbabwe. And as we record this, we're about a week away from the release of the aerial school phenomenon documentary, which I've been fortunate mm-hmm. to see a copy of, and it's very, very good, very thorough. And it follows the the story of those children into their adulthood as well. And many of those children grew up to have very, um, be very altruistic after those experiences. And they go into careers that reflect this. Is, has that held true in your experience and with the people you've spoken to as well? Well, I was fascinated when I first saw that uh, video, the, some of the earlier ones that were on YouTube you know, back as far as 2010, 2011. And it always struck me as probably the most impressive uh, proof that something was happening, right? That you couldn't have that many children seeing and talking about the same thing. And some people go, oh, rubbish, Gary. Of course they can. I was like, no rubbish. You Shut up. You're wrong, right? Stop gaslighting me. It, it's you can't get that many people saying the same thing, especially children, and then still holding now to that story, you know, 20, 30 years later. So um, they mostly seem to have seen the same thing, right? And the, the differences only seem to be down to the level of the artistic ability of the individual student to draw what it is that they thought that they saw. But like... Um, I think a lot of it, if you follow any of the remote viewing literature, the, the, the teaching of the remote view capability is to read the signal, not the interpretation, right? That once you start getting into interpretation, that's where your 
cultural background at, and you, what's going on inside your head starts to adjust what it is you think you saw. And so there might be a little bit of that going on with these children, but irrespective of that, the, the central story of what they saw uh, appears to be, well, at the very least, a shared experience. Um, you know, there's no, but the, there's no material evidence, but the, the social or the psychosocial evidence is, as you mentioned, 100% clear. These kids were affected for their whole lives. Um, it apparently changed them, at least as, as far as they're concerned, for the better. I, I don't know if any of the, I haven't seen the movie, so I'm jealous that you've seen it already. Um, you know, I haven't heard of any negative consequences other than, let's say that they, the, they were, um, the, the children were maybe a little ostracized at the time. Um, but no traumatic negatives. Uh, so I'm trying to understand, uh, the, what is going to be now the response to this? It's certainly the, the movies and the things that were on YouTube. I used to point to my friends all the time. I said, listen, don't listen to anything else. Just go watch that movie and tell me what you think. And, you know, a lot of people came back saying, wow, you know, this is seriously interesting. There, there's an innocence to those children and their, their stories. And when John Mack got involved, and this is something that's that comes out in the documentary, no spoilers, but he really moves on the story and gets the emotion and the feeling from the children, which is fascinating right. to, to see come across on the camera as well. And something that, that doesn't happen to those children, but has happened to others and has been well documented is the, the potential of a, a hitchhiker effect. We've heard this from places such as Skinwalker Ranch, that there's a potential for a, a strangeness to follow individuals from mm -hmm. the, the place that occurs and moves on. Uh, and I wonder, do you consider this to almost be a, a virus type of effect from the work you've seen or, or anything that's been done on it? Well, see, hitchhiker implies something has attached to you. Um, but maybe a different way of talking about it is that you're now open to observing things that you couldn't see before, but that there's a dialectic, right? There's a discussion that you seeing leads to a feedback that it knows it's been seen. And so you see it more, right? I used a term lighthouses in the dark uh, a long time ago in the book uh, phenomenon that some people seem to be lighthouses in the dark, almost as if the ability to see is uh, observable from elsewhere. And so it gets attracted to you. But once you've opened, you've lit the lighthouse. And so hitchhiker implies a negative kind of thing, something sitting on your shoulder, as opposed to you're open to seeing it. And so therefore it's willing, you know, it wants to talk. So it, it hangs around, you know, but many of the, I mean, you have both positive and negative stories of hitchhikers. I have a, a good friend in the military and it was, I, I would say, largely a negative uh, hitchhiker effect to him and his family. Um, I, I know of a couple of positive hitchhiker effects as well. 
is there potential those those positives and negatives are how those individuals construe what's happening and mm-hmm. potentially whatever is causing these effects isn't necessarily looking at those those consequences of their actions as being positive or negative and just a way right. to communicate yeah you know i mean if you've listened to any of colm kelleher's uh interviews um he has a, i always accuse him of being a it's a particularly dark Irish view of, of things. Um, but I, I can't disagree with him that it, it, it gives you back what you put into it. It's a feedback system. Um, you know, there's this notion of, uh, synchronicities and intent and synchronicities happen almost when you want them to almost as if now you're talking to the phenomenon and it's giving you back what you want, right? You basically create the world in front of you by intending it. Um, you know, I, I've not seen any proof of that, but it's a fascinating concept. I mean, I have plenty of synchronicities that are bizarre that happen in, in my life, but um, whether that's some outside agency purposefully listening to my desires and creating that for me, or whether there's something more fundamental to the structure of the universe that allows for these kinds of things to occur is an open question. Those synchronicities can certainly range for different people and they can be very strange when they happen, but I do wonder, is it because I'm thinking about a certain ABBA song and it comes on the radio seconds after that some Mm -hmm. non-human intelligence has allowed that to happen or is it just, you know, pure coincidence? But something that people have got in touch with me recently about is is different synchronicities and it's, it's always fascinating to hear about. Moving on and skipping a whole lot of stuff, Gary, just due to time constraints, um, you've recently published a peer-reviewed paper on studying materials found at crash sites. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Sure. Um, well, the objective of the paper up front was to work on uh, a sample, at least one sample, that uh, was in, in many ways non-controversial insofar as the the number of witnesses that had seen it, right? So you had multiple witnesses uh, on site immediately. You had a chain of custody that you could list that basically made sure that the object was not hoaxed in some way. Um, And uh, this one was the Council Bluffs episode. And this is one that Jacques uh, Vallée had been involved with for a long time. Uh, and an object was seen above the city of Council Bluffs, Iowa. Uh, it was a, one of these typical kind of things with a light flashing around, and then it just some object dropped from it, glowing object at night. Um, and the witnesses showed up, 30-ish pounds of molten metal on the dirt uh, next to a levee near water. Uh, zero chance that it you know, had, was... Uh, hoaxed or dropped there by some industrial process of humans. All of this stuff had been pre-vetted long before I came to the scene. Um, And I just brought the tools that are available in my laboratory uh, for materials analysis, metal analysis, uh, to the the table. Uh, And we did a very simple metallurgical analysis. I mean, there's a lot more that could be done with it, especially these days. Um, we didn't find anything remarkable. 
in it in terms of the isotopes. But what was, if anything, remarkable was that depending on where you looked in the sample that I had, the metals that were there were of different ratios. So it was incompletely mixed. So whatever it came from had multiple inputs of different metals like you know magnesium and iron and titanium, but it hadn't been you know mixed in a blender already. It was only partially mixed and then dropped. So that's interesting because you can go to most smelting uh, companies that are making iron or things, and you know either what you found on one piece of an iron versus another is going to be is going to be the same because if it's not, it's going to have different tension and torsional properties when you mold it into whatever it is you're molding. Right. And so it will have fracture, uh, you know, in one place more likely than another. So uh, that was interesting. Um, but then also the, the, the combination of metals that were in it were again, not something which is used in any normal industrial process doesn't, I mean, it, all it means is we don't know, right? That, that's kind of the limit of what you can say. But the, the purpose of putting this one paper out wasn't so much to say, here's something remarkable, but it was to say, here's how you publish a paper like this. Here's how you don't jump to conclusions as to what it means. Here's how you just say, I have the data you can believe the data. Come up with a conclusion yourself if you think you have the answer. It's a puzzle waiting to be solved. Uh, and so, but it was also to show that you can do it and publish these kinds of things, get them through peer review, and not be ridiculed for it as long as you strip stick to certain scientific strictures about how you do it. You have to become, you have to be bulletproof. I mean, mentally, you have to become bulletproof. And because I still have plenty of my colleagues who, you know, Twitter about it, you know, you know, but then interestingly, more and more, I was, uh, I was just in, um, in uh, New York City in Manhattan at a meeting, a science meeting, and people came up to me and said, Gary, I've been reading about your involvement in all of this. That's really cool. Right, that's totally cool. And why is it cool? Because the next thing out of their mouths is, yeah, I saw this all this stuff in the New York Times about these pilots who've seen things and these congressional inquiries that are uh, about to happen. Wow, you're, you know, you, you really seem to be onto something. You know, part of me is like, well, yeah, I told you so. But um, you know, I try to back off from self congratulation on that, but. Uh, and so you, it's, it's a, I think Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon and a number of others behind the scenes who you'll probably never get the names of, uh, who have been pushing this forward that have opened it up for us in a way that, uh, is to me exciting. Yes. There's a lot of negative people out there, you know, saying, you know, oh, you guys are a bunch of, you know, it's, it's Falea do. Uh, you're all a bunch of morons. This is a waste of time. Well, it's my time. Why does it offend you that I'm spending my time on something? 
I'm not telling you not to do something. Maybe I should be offended that you're spending your time worrying about me. I'm living rent free in your head. You know, I mean, I, I, it's just like, what, what, why do you care? Do, it's like it's like they have this religious box that they want everybody to live within. And if you step outside of it, you shall be, you're a heretic. How dare you? Go away. Leave me alone. Do you know, Gary, when you talk about people living rent-free in your head, it's funny. I have no issue with trolls and all that kind of stuff. I find it quite cathartic and almost a hobby to engage with them for a while um mm-hmm. and we had one particular troll on some of the youtube live chats who i engaged with and eventually they actually emailed me privately to say they were sorry for trolling so much but the whole idea of this ufo phenomenon scares them and i was like well that that's fine just talk about it and but the way it was manifesting was to sit on chats of various interviews with people like yourself and slate the subject but actually they did have an interest but they just don't know how to express that, which I found quite interesting. And mm-hmm. people just mm-hmm. have to take that kind of step back. Gary. Yeah, I don't mind those kinds of people. It's the professional trolls that um, that bother me. Uh, I mean, it doesn't bother me. It's like, but why why are you bothered? Yeah. Um, it, uh, it's, it just seems like they've got nothing better to do. That they feed on this negativity uh, and to me, it's like, look, dude, you need to, you need to go see a psychiatrist. Well, listen, Gary, next week on the 17th of May, I think it'll be the day after this interview is released, Congress is conducting hearings regarding unidentified aerial phenomenon. What would you personally like to hear asked at those hearings? I would like to hear um, about something actually that Chris Mellon just tweeted uh I'm actually in a, another conversation with him right now on another channel. I'm watching some conversations go on. Um, is what's the evidence of any of this stuff in orbit, right? We have lots of sensors up there. Uh, so that's one of the things that should be discussed. Um, what might be a potential agenda of these objects, right? So, I mean, that's a scary thing to start talking about, but if they're hanging around mostly being seen at our nuclear facilities, that implies something a little on the, let's say, the scarier side. Um, and there was another thing that I was thinking there that is, uh, oh, well, it'll come to me, but those are those are two of the main ones that, that I want to hear about. Um, and, but I also want to have at some point a discussion around what are the opportunities? You know, let's say that whatever this is keeps continues to keeps us keep us at arm's length. But has there ever been any attempt at communication with this? And if so, what has been the interaction? What has been the feedback? You know, that's a, that's another one. And then another thing that is, I think, gathering a fair amount of uh, uh, inertia is this idea of um, immunity versus amnesty. Um, That if we're going to get people to come out of the shadows, there has to be immunity. Now, a friend of mine who I talk with a lot, he says, look, it can't be amnesty because amnesty is you've already been convicted of something and then you're given amnesty for it. No, you want immunity 
up front. So we should stop using the word amnesty. We should start using the word immunity because immunity means that you, you won't be prosecuted, right? But it needs to be a carrot and a stick approach, right? It's immunity if you come forward now beyond a certain date. And if you don't, now you're going to be stuck in the amnesty bucket after you've been, you know, if, if necessary, uh, uh, basically run through a ringer. But that's the only way we're going to open things up. So it has to be an open discussion of that. I was talking to a congressman uh, just a couple of weeks ago about exactly this issue. And um, his uh, opinion is that that is going to have to be done. Gary, you've been extremely generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I had over 100 listener questions sent in for this, and that's just the ones I managed to get on paper. So I would love if in the near future you could come back on and get through some of those listener questions because people had some fantastic things to ask you. So I appreciate how busy you are, and uh, hopefully we can arrange that for down the line. Wonderful. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I'll come back another time, and we can go through some of those questions. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your own.